Hello. You are listening to Cut Pathways, a podcast produced by Carnegie Mellon University. I'm Catherine Barbera. And I'm Dave Bernabo. This podcast dives into the university's archive of recorded oral histories to showcase the people that made Carnegie Mellon what it is. We record the real-life memories and perspectives of those who experience the history of Carnegie Mellon University. And this season, we're looking at Steel City Outsiders and the Institutional Avant-Garde. Or... Or the story of how Oakland's, our neighborhood here in Pittsburgh, emerged as an unlikely center for avant-garde and experimental arts in the 1970s. So this season, we are diving into stories about how this happened, as told by the people who were actually there. They're stories about starting something new, about not necessarily having a plan, but finding a way to do it anyway. These are stories about finding belonging and community and forging new creative forms. We are talking about avant-garde film. We're talking about punk. We're talking about electronic art. We're talking about how computers changed art and music and arts communities themselves. So what's that sound? That is the sound of artist Thaddeus Mosley sculpting. What you are hearing is Thad hammering a chisel into a big block of wood, and there are shards of wood falling into an accumulating pile at his feet. I tell the people to carve it easy, coming up with a good idea is the hard part. Is this in his studio? Yeah. I popped over to a studio one day to talk with Thad, and he told me about artist Selma Burke in the Selma Burke Art Center, which was in East Liberty in the 1970s. Yeah, she was a strong woman, and she was very effective because she had been doing this quite a while by the time I met her. And But she could rough out a six-foot sculpture in about a day with a hand axe, and She's quite adept at I guess the closest thing you might think of if you saw a Boy Scout axe, and I could never get the idea of using a hand axe. <laughs> it felt a little risky for, for me. Yeah, so we mentioned the Selma Burke Art Center in episode two of this season. Pittsburgh Filmmakers was located in the basement of the center for a little while before Pittsburgh Filmmakers moved to Oakland. And I know we're talking about Oakland art communities and institutions in this season of the podcast, but the story of the Selma Burke Art Center has so many parallels to the story of how Sally Dixon started the film section at the Carnegie Museum of Art. Right, and a lot of the same institutions are involved, including the Carnegie Institute and people like Theodore Hazlett of the Mellon Trust. Well, it sounds like uh, this would be a cool story to tell. Absolutely. So before we get started, let's talk about storytelling. In this season, we are looking at stories about the intersection of artists, communities, and institutions. But we haven't yet acknowledged our role as storytellers in this equation. Yeah, there's a power in storytelling. As oral historians, we're collecting people's lived experiences. But there's a complex web of factors that influence these conversations, including our own positionality as white Americans and representing CMU. And then, by selectively excerpting the interviews and putting them into the podcast, we're influencing them even more. Yeah. Now, when I listen to a podcast, there are often points of tension, mystery, and lots of cliffhangers. These are hallmarks of classic stories. So in shaping more accessible stories for this season of the podcast, we are looking, like, actively looking for those points of tension, and maybe unintentionally giving greater weight to conflict. So I guess we're acknowledging this out loud, so that you as listeners understand that the stories we're telling aren't the only ones out there. Yeah. We are talking to a handful of people within these larger communities. If we talk to a different handful, it could be a different story. Two things can be true. And we encourage everyone to go out and learn more about all of the groups and institutions we're talking about this season. 
think of this podcast as a jumping off point. Should we jump off? Yeah, let's do it. So this is a story about how artist and educator Selma Burke came to Pittsburgh to open the Selma Burke Art Center in East Liberty. So listeners may know the name Selma Burke. She accomplished a lot in her life. She was quite well known and was sometimes called the people's sculptor or the poetess in stone. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, and when I was talking to Bill Strickland, who is the founder of the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild, I asked Bill if Selma was famous. But how did I say it? I asked if she was a bit famous. And then Bill said, Bit famous? I mean, the Roosevelt dime, need we go on? I mean, one of the world's great sculptors. You know, and and she had huge relationships and knew the Roosevelt family, obviously. She brought all that reputational uh, value to us in Pittsburgh. It was, she was a remarkable woman. So by the time Selma Burke came to Pittsburgh in 1967, she already had a successful career, a career with many different phases, locations, and collaborators. Yeah, going all the way back, Selma Burke was born on New Year's Eve, 1900, in Mooresville, North Carolina. She was one of 10 children. And there was this myth that grew out of her childhood. Art historian Rebecca Giordano told me about this when we spoke on Zoom one day. So my name is Rebecca Giordano. Rebecca is a PhD candidate at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm also the um, Frost Fellow at the Smithsonian American Art Museum and an incoming fellow at the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. And I'm an art historian. Here's the story. There's sort of these myths that accrue across, you know, any any kind of artist where Selma's big myth in terms of her sort of encounter with art making is that she like went to the red clay mud in the river by her house and was just sort of struck and (laughs) began sculpting then and there. And I love it because it's like, it's like a saint, you know, like there's this called by God kind of quality. It's just this natural thing to her. So we think this idea comes from an interview Selma Burke gave in 1991, where she says, We had a creek with gray-white clay. My mother used the clay as a whitewash, and my brother would give me pennies for squeezing the clay to make the wash. I noticed the imprint of the palm of my hand on the clay, and then I began to shape things. Burke's interest in clay continued as an adult. She studied in Vienna, Paris, and Rome and immersed herself in the Harlem Renaissance. So Burke sculpted a bust of educator and author Booker T. Washington while employed by the WPA, or the Works Progress Administration, which was a New Deal federal project meant to employ millions of people during the Great Depression. During World War II, Burke received an MFA at Columbia in 1941. She joined the Navy in 1942, And then, in 1943, she had two sittings with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, the president, which resulted in a relief sculpture of FDR. Yeah, and this is her most famous work. And it's said by some, well, by many in fact, that Selma Burke's sculpture was the basis for John R. Sinek's design of the dime. So in the 1940s, WPA basically ends and Burke digs into teaching. She opened two schools— the Selma Burke School of Sculpture in Greenwich Village, and then in 1946, the Selma Burke Art School. So these are precursors to the type of art center that Selma will spearhead in Pittsburgh 24 years later. Yeah, and Burke was teaching and selling work. And in 1949, she got married and moved to an artist colony in Bucks County near Philadelphia. He was a member of the DuPont family, and he was kind of a liberal left, white man who worked as an urban planner who she met in New York and they got married and moved to Bucks County and she built a studio on his property there and Bucks County was sort of a primarily white artist enclave um, and she really loved living there by all accounts she 
basically ran this studio where people would kind of drop in and she would like give a little demonstration, sell art, but you know, she kind of entered into financial security through her marriage in a way that she didn't really have to teach so much. And then her husband died and she started teaching more in the late 1950s and started teaching at Salisbury School, which is a private academy, and ran the art department there. And at that point, Burke became a member of the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts. So this is important. Burke was highly educated and had connections to people in power and was well regarded as a person and an artist. And now, her involvement with the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts, along with her wide range of experiences, would lead her to become the namesake and figurehead of a new arts organization in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and it was through the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts that Burke met Theodore Hazlett. Who is the chairman of the A.W. Mellon Trust. And it's through that connection and their friendship that the Selma Burke Arts Center, sort of the germ, um, comes into being. The seed is planted. So the A.W. Mellon Educational and Charitable Trust, or simply the Mellon Trust, was founded by Andrew W. Mellon in 1930 and was instrumental in funding things like the Three Rivers Arts Festival, the Carnegie International Exhibitions, and the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. The Mellon Trust also funded what became WQED and helped to establish the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. So the Mellon Trust was a big deal and was essential to many of the art educational, and environmental institutions that still exist today. All right, so in 1967, Theodore Hazlett, who was running the Mellon Trust, invites Selma Burke to visit Pittsburgh. Hazlett invites her to come to Pittsburgh and sort of consult for the Mellon Trust to sort of start thinking about how do we support Black arts here? What would it take to sort of cultivate? What does the Black arts scene need? It's something where at this point Selma's not quite in the public eye on the national and international level the way she was. At the same time, at the state level, she's on the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts. She understands how to run institutions at that point. And she also comes out of these really important artistic scenes where everyone agrees excellent Black art was being made. And so I think she becomes a really great candidate, um, partly because of that experience, partly because of her stature, but also because she's an elite. At that point, she is serving on the state council. She is connected to Hazlitt already. Um, So it's not like she answered an ad, let's say. It wasn't like the Mellon Trust was like, calling into the distance for a Black artist to come to town. It was like, and there's letters basically where Hazlitt says, like, you know, if it's not for you, there'd be no, nothing happening. It's you and meeting someone like you that makes me sure that this project should go forward. So, in 1967, Selma Burke visits Pittsburgh for the first time. Pittsburgh, like many cities at the time, was racially segregated. Where Jim Crow laws were policy in the South, the northern states maintained a de facto racial segregation. Policies like redlining, which limited the ability for people in certain neighborhoods to acquire bank loans and insurance, reinforced racial segregation. These kinds of policies and attitudes greatly diminished the ability for Black Americans to have equal opportunities to acquire wealth, power, and property. And in the 1950s, urban renewal was the new redlining in the same way that today's gentrification is the new urban renewal. One of the biggest examples of urban renewal in Pittsburgh is the construction of the Civic Arena. Between 1955 and 1960, the city of Pittsburgh decimated a hub of black culture in the Lower Hill District by using eminent domain to displace 400 businesses and 8,000 residents. Justification for these acts of violence towards citizens include vague phrases like the need to clean up, 
bladed areas. The neighborhoods of East Liberty and the North Side were also greatly altered, physically and socially, by urban renewal efforts. You know, Pittsburgh was in a crisis in 1967 because of basically decisions that were made in 1955. So really this is in some ways a story about the Urban Renewal Association. In some ways, this is a story about urban renewal. This is a story about speculation, abandonment, and displacement. Art factors into these things because it is a social force and it's something that has power in the world and money. It's not that art is like neutral, it's rather something that can be wielded. So, you know, if we go back a little bit further prior to the uprisings after King's assassination, 1968, in 1955 is when the URA, which is melon controlled, right? So in some ways what we're looking at is there is like, and I don't mean this to sound like a shadowy elite. It was very public. Everyone was giving speeches. Everyone knew, like there was no behind the scenes. It was just exclusive, right? It was basically the various factions of the Mellon family fortune, whether it was Gulf Oil, Alcoa, the Carnegie Institute, which was by 1968 run by A.W. Mellon's nephew. You know, there's this way that what we're looking at in Pittsburgh are these kind of like tycoons, right? Who are often the leaders of philanthropic organizations, right? Because who else could have the money to run something like a philanthropy? In 1968, Selma Burke made additional visits to the city. But after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, there was a different atmosphere. I asked Bill Strickland what Pittsburgh was like in the late 60s. Tough riots. Dr. King, you know, was killed. Um, It was a very difficult time. Neighborhoods were burning. My neighborhood, Manchester, was burning. I personally witnessed the police uh, almost as an occupying force. It was very, very tough. People were killed. Uh, Homes were burned, unfortunately, largely in the black community. Um, But it it was chaos. After Dr. King was assassinated, over 100 U.S. cities sought protests. In Pittsburgh, the unrest lasted from April 5th to April 11th, 1968. The same day, the second Civil Rights Act was signed. As a reaction to exploitation, there were over 500 fires, and businesses were looted and vandalized. There was a 3,500-person march from what is now Freedom Corner in the Hill District to Point State Park. Towards the end of the protests, Pennsylvania's governor called in the National Guard. So before the 1968 protests, Ted Hazlett and Selma Burke were brainstorming what this art center could be. But after the protest, there seemed to be a greater urgency to make something happen soon. Well, there were all kinds of thoughts. First thing was, after the civil disturbances and so forth in the 60s, I guess the powers that be got together and saw what we can do to calm things down. It is the case, just to be clear, that in 1967, Hazlitt had already invited Burke. It's not that there wasn't already kind of excitement and enthusiasm, but it is three weeks after King's assassination, two and a half weeks after the conclusion of the riots in Pittsburgh and the Hill, that Selma is offered a job. So, you know call me a skeptic, (laughs) I think perhaps some timelines were accelerated, some urgency. And as we've seen, you know, in recent protests, you got to strike while the iron's hot, right? So there's a way that in moments of crises, money can be redistributed and a lot of things can change as that money is redistributed. Securing it in an ongoing way becomes a crisis. So Rebecca points out three phases of how the Selma Burke Art Center became a reality. There's sort of three phases that lead up to the opening of the SBAC. 
phase one. One of which is she comes to 1967 for a few days and is like a consultant. And she's paid very handsomely for this, I should say. Um, she gets like 500 bucks in 1967 money to come for like a few days and just like talk with um, some folks at the Mellon Trust, at the Carnegie Institute, which was what the Carnegie Museum was called then. She does that, has a great time, gets kind of taken around the city. Basically what happens is they're like, okay, we love you, we love your ideas. How about you come to Pittsburgh for a year? We'll pay you $1,000 a month to live in one of the three URA identified slum districts. That's their term, which was Northside, East Liberty, and The Hill. And what they really wanted was for her to basically do what she was doing in Bucks County, which was have this kind of drop-in open studio where she was sort of like an artist and resident in the community. And they didn't quite call it that, but that's basically what it was. And so she would have these like open studios and she would get to know people and kind of feel out the scene, see what's kind of going on for black artists in Pittsburgh. Because importantly, the Mellon Trust had no idea what was happening for black artists in Pittsburgh. And so they were like, oh, we'll get this person to come and tell us what's going on. And we'll get this very prominent black artist who everybody's gonna love and she'll come and that'll be great. So phase two, Selma Burke is now in Pittsburgh, spending a year as basically a resident artist, meeting people and researching what the art center should be. She and Hazlitt have a very close working relationship. I mean, one of the things that I used was the Mellon Trust, which was you know a philanthropic organization, had really great archives. This was like the era of secretaries where like, I mean, it is heavenly for me. But so there's a lot of meeting notes where they take a trip to New York together to visit other um, Black-serving art centers. It's interesting to think that this is around the same time that Sally Dixon is visiting New York City, meeting and talking with avant-garde filmmakers and visiting folks at the MoMA. It really reinforces how New York City was a center of art and culture. So Selma Burke and Ted Hazlett visit art centers in New York City, and now they are back in Pittsburgh brainstorming what the SBAC should be. There's a lot of conversation about what should this be. And so she embarks on this project called the Negro Artist Talent Search, which is looking at who is making art in Pittsburgh. And she makes a list, basically, of all of the people she thinks of as like talented Black artists who could use support or are part of this scene. These lists are preserved in the A.W. Mellon Educational and Charitable Trust records at the University of Pittsburgh. So some of the names on the list include Bill Strickland and Thaddeus Mosley, Walter Sims, who would be the director of the SBAC for a number of years, and Barbara Peterson, who would teach at the center. And that's sort of one, let's say, like deliverable, something that comes out of that earlier phase. This was also a way to be like, is there the talent to employ at at a school or a community center? Are there enough working Black artists in Pittsburgh to sustain a solid center? And they were like, oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Turns out there's a ton of people we've been ignoring. Who knew? Bill Strickland was one of the Pittsburgh artists that Burke visited around this time. In 1968, Bill Strickland founded the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild, which is a nonprofit art, education, and music organization in the Manchester neighborhood. We mentioned Northside as a neighborhood that experienced urban renewal, but Northside is actually a collection of neighborhoods, and Manchester is on the western edge of what is known as the Northside. Here's Bill Strickland. I had the good fortune to meet Selma Burke, who we all know, and she came to see me when I was running the... just sort of founded Manchester Craftsman's Guild in the 60s. I was a one-man band. I sort of ran the program, raised the money, and made pottery all at the same time in a row house. Selma Burke was on the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts, the grant-making arm of the state, and she heard about my work, and she came to visit me. And I'd never forget, she had this beautiful white mink coat which he promptly tossed on a chair, was just fascinated with the place. And I think she was inspired because we had a chance to talk about what I was doing in the arts and this and that. 
it was a one-man band. This was a tent ministry, man, during the riots. And so I think my contribution was to say to Dr. Burke, build the center. We need it. You know, the black community can prosper by this example if this center could be built. And so I got to be a, kind of an informal advisor and promoter. And she invited me to teach or establish this ceramics program at the Burke Center, which I did for and ran it for a couple of years. Thad Mosley was also a consultant in the early days of the SBAC. And there were different ideas. Uh, one was to build like a same sort of institution that's in Harlem. Of course, Selma was against that. She and I and Walt Sims went out to meet with the people at the Carnegie and talk about it. They said, well, where should we build this institution? I said, build it next to the Carnegie. And, of course, that ended the meeting. People got very upset. And uh, Selma never believed too much in segregation of any sort, you know. And I told them, well, what these neighborhood needs, particularly Afro-American neighborhoods and any poor neighborhood, is more space for kids can do things after school so they're not just hanging on corners and that sort of stuff and, and, and have an interest in what maybe going to college may be like, you know. But these institutions all based on some kind of philanthropic support, which can't come from the neighborhood, any neighborhood, regardless of how affluent it is. So Selma Burke was clever in that she got all the black artists in town to kind of help her as advisors. She was exploring what was going on so that she would not duplicate or repeat other things that were successful. And to her credit, she went out and talked to me and Thad Mosley and a few other people about what an impact this center could potentially have on the lives and careers of not just guys like me, but people who wanted to be like us. And that was, I think, her gift. And the Mellon Foundation, you know, really supported her. Um, you know, the Carnegie Museum supported her. So it was a great era, great period of time for us, very hopeful. So Burke meets a number of local artists. But before we jump to the next phase, let's quickly recap. So 1967, she's invited for a short trip. 1968, she comes to Pittsburgh for a year to sort of think about the viability of the center. 1969, plans are coming into effect. Now. Phase three, money, a building, and a staff. So for the next year and a half, she's sort of coming up with the center, working with Hazlitt in particular. And the way that it's structured early on is that the Mellon Trust basically is like, we will give you an operating budget through the Carnegie Institute. So that's the funding. The Mellon Trust will provide $100,000 a year for operating costs. It will be distributed through the Carnegie Institute. That's equivalent to about $750,000 today. Now, they also need a building, and they were offered one in East Liberty. So the building, the URA says, we will give you a building for free, $1 a year, but you have to put it in a slum district. Again, their words. So they end up being leased the building that they were in um, for the entire existence of the center, and it was a disused Mellon bank. In the license agreement, the building is known as URA Disposition Parcel B2. So if you try to visit the building today, you'll see that it is completely different. The SBAC building was knocked down, and it is now a brand new four-story housing complex. Yeah, it's one of those boxy, vaguely Scandinavian-designed buildings. The ground floor has a Chula restaurant, an AT&T, and a Huntington. Another former Mellon Bank, built in 1969, sits vacant across the street. So in 1971, the Selma Burke Art Center opened its doors, 
And the center offered a number of really cool programs. And they had uh, pottery classes, clay, and then they had dance classes. I think I vividly remember some African dancing classes or performances. Good uh, drawing program. And I think they had photography. Photography, film, and we had just started doing video, or early stages of video. A uh, little, little program, but it, got, it, it was on its way. They started to do a little bit of theater. So I remember Bob Johnson and his group used to perform there, and poetry. There was some poetry being in, in its infancy. So the Burke Center incubated a lot of these young people coming along. It was, it was wonderful. And a lot of these classes were taking place at the same time. There is an article from 1972 from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, I believe, that describes quite a scene of activity. It describes a group of boys and girls around a grand piano singing songs. Girls on the floor in a corner playing records. Two people at a table reading lines from a play. A group doing ballet exercises in front of a large portable mirror and several boys working with a TV camera near the piano. The article says it wasn't chaotic or confusing, just pleasantly busy. But the main thing was it was a, a great place for kids to go. But there were classes for kids, a lot of tours by children uh, who visited the center, met the uh, administration. That was very good for those children to see something that an African-American woman built. You know, seeing the center, being there, participating in the events, and seeing this this little mini, you know, artistic, I don't even know what you call it, enterprise by a black woman was like unprecedented. I had never seen anything like it. And I was bowled over, quite frankly. So that's Christine Bathia who visited the Selma Burke Art Center in her early 20s and is now the president of Women of Visions, an arts group that was founded in the early 1980s and took inspiration from Selma Burke and the SBAC. I think that was probably one of my very first foray into the arts. I'd always been, you know, been interested in the arts, had, had you know, sort of read things, you know, and like my Ebony magazine. <laughs> but... Up close and personal, had I seen black art, you know, and, and that, on that on that scale, even though it wasn't a large scale. And it doesn't have to be a large scale, but it has to be there. It has to be present. And that was something that she was doing in the city that no one else was doing. So this is, you know, long before Ujamaa and, and, you know, and long before the August Wilson Center and long before other uh, black art centers were, were setting up. Um, and she was there. And that was, that was the beauty of it. It wasn't totally Afro-American. There were people that worked there, like Lorraine Wigman taught there and some other people. And, and of course, it was attended by everyone because it was so centrally located in the East Liberty. But it had an Afro-American focus. It was under the wing of the Carnegie Museum. So they brought in different people. Um, Betty Sauer, they brought in Romare Bearden, and people that uh, most people in Pittsburgh hadn't even seen any of their work. So. so I was, I think, attending Point Park College at the time, and I had come back to the city. I was a military brat, and I was born in Pittsburgh but was not raised in Pittsburgh. I wanted to come back to my hometown, and I'll put that in loose quotes because I didn't really know a whole lot about Pittsburgh, even though I was born here. I left at the age of three. The hometown thing, I wasn't feeling that yet. And I know that once I saw the Selma Burke Art Center, that suddenly made me feel like, wow, there's something special here in the city. And I, you know, I want to be part of that. That is a great definition of community. So our podcast season explores, in part, the relationships between institutions and artists. Yeah, and we've heard from Bill, Thad, and Christine about the value of the SBAC's programming. But behind the scenes, there were some tensions. 
So Selma technically was never the director, assistant director, or held any formal position other than board member and founder. Until the Mellon Trust withdraws, there's no female director. And despite the fact that the vast majority of instructors are women, the people who are doing a lot of the kind of day-to-day design of classes and programming are women. And in the early years, Burke was really involved. So she lives in Pittsburgh from 1968 to 1975. And that whole time she is, is an employee of the Carnegie Institute. She maintains a studio for most of those years inside the museum. She teaches classes inside the museum and on behalf of the museum at the Pittsburgh Public Schools. So another way to think about Selma's contribution is she's this huge presence in Pittsburgh, not just the center, but if we look at Burke herself, she teaches by her count 60,000 students in the Pittsburgh public schools. 60,000, right? So like almost everyone who was in elementary school, I think, um, between 1969 and 1975. So Selma Burke was a major presence in Pittsburgh. I asked Bill Strickland if he saw tension within the community because of her affiliations with institutions like the Mellon Trust and Carnegie Institute. No, no, I th- because Dr. Burke had such credibility in the community that she was like the good housekeeping seal of approval. If Selma Burke said it was cool, it was cool, and there was no discussion we all lined up behind Selma Burke. And that said, speaking with Thad Mosley, it seems like it was common knowledge that Ted Hazlett and the Mellon Trust had a tangible interest in quelling future protests. I guess the powers that be got together and saw what we can do to calm things down. But Rebecca also told us about how after the SBAC opened, the Mellon Trust convened what were essentially focus groups to gauge the art community's response to the center. And when you read that document, it's like maybe six or seven pages, the report on those. What becomes really apparent is that the relationship between the Black artistic community of Pittsburgh and institutional power is so strained at that moment. I'm not sure anyone could have bridged that gap. And within the SBAC, there's also a commingling of the more overtly political Black arts movement style of work with Selma Burke's universalist approach, her interest in technique and craft, a mix of Pan-African and European aesthetics. And she was just about artists being artists, you know, and she disliked the idea of, say, Black Artist Week, that sort of stuff. You know, she said, artists are artists. Show me with every other decent artist, you know. And that's what Selma was about. But it was uh, was mainly about black culture, but not specifically and only, you know. But what she was trying to do is teach the young people about dance, about pottery and, and art in general. And that's the influence that she infused into the SBAC. But the SBAC had a number of instructors, which also infused the center with their interests and ideas. And what's really interesting to me is that both things are happening at the center. So from the very beginning, from 1971, you can see in the course listings and the kind of art being produced and who's teaching that there were both models occurring at the center. And I think it's really important when we try to tell these histories and think about these histories that we don't tell a story in which there's no tension, right? Like there was all kinds of tension. People didn't like each other. People were frustrated. People felt passed over. People felt like their time had finally arrived. People were having all different kinds of reactions because they're people, right? And one of the things that I think is so kind of exciting about studying and like a center like this is it's an organism, right? There's like all these different kinds of parts happening at once and people and players. And it's a like kind of a living thing. Yeah, 
I mean, there were a lot of details that we don't have time to cover in this podcast. And yeah, there were tensions. Like in 1971, the Carnegie Institute sent Selma Burke a letter saying she had to retire. They had a policy that at the age of 65 for women and 70 for men, employees had to retire, losing their health and life insurance benefits. And Selma said no to that. (laughs) Another interesting tension was the way money was dispersed from the Mellon Trust to the Carnegie Institute to the SBAC. So every penny that the SBAC wanted to spend, they had to write a memo to the, I think at the bursar, or you know, whoever the financial officer was. 12 cents for a postage stamp. 3.99 for a hammer. Literally every penny. Salary, supplies, keeping the lights on. $3 for a gallon of paint. 99 cents for a pound of coffee. Everything has to be requested um, in a memo, then dispersed. And so what that does is it just, it hamstrings things slows everything down, it makes everything difficult, and it actively dissuades, you know, people from spending money, which I think is one of those ways that we can begin to sort of point to institutional choices that were sort of designed to keep the center dependent. So for the first seven years of the SBAC, the balance sheets effectively show a bit of money from ticket sales, registration fees, and rental fees, but the large majority of the cash is that $100,000 a year from the Mellon Trust. And that's partly because the SBAC couldn't apply for nonprofit status. They were a subsidiary of the Carnegie Institute. And that means it was hard for the SBAC to accept donations or apply for grants or get additional funding streams. But it was challenging times. They were weak on the administrative side. The administrators were not very skilled at diversifying their revenue base. And we here at Manchester, unfortunately, learned from that mistake and diversified our revenue base so that we could take one hit but keep on chugging. And as the SBAC carried on, there were administrative issues. And there's a lot of letters where instructors are leaving because they're not being paid on time. People are not getting the correct salary. People are not getting, you know, sort of the hours they worked or classes they taught properly recorded. And so in some ways, this is an instance of like, yes, fiscal mismanagement is sort of what gets said, but also institutional neglect in the sense of, okay, so you created this institution where people don't really have the power to run their own administration, you hamstring them, and then don't help them work around these systems or develop better systems. I would say that there did seem to come a moment in time where things got a little, I call it laggy, you know what I mean? You would go, you pull on the door, it didn't open, (laughs) and you were sort of like, okay, what's going on? And I they didn't have a receptionist. You could literally like walk right in, you know what I mean? And there was nobody really greeting you. So I do recall that there were, there were certainly some, some lag moments, you know, in the center's history where it seemed like things maybe might not be going so well. But despite those tensions, the SBAC was a place for community to gather. Well, I went there quite a bit, particularly when um, my children used to go for the events and all. It was just a a nice place to go to, and they had interesting programs and interesting shows. And there were a number of really great educators. Charlotte Kaw was teaching from 1971 to 1973, and I think really left a pretty strong stamp on the institution. And, you know, similarly, Dee Levister, another Black woman educator, Barbara Peterson, there was just sort of this amazing cast of people who were coming in and out of the center. And I think that's what a center should do, right? It provides this locus. And there were also exhibitions in addition to classes and education. The SBAC became a destination for visiting artists, lecturers, and educators. 
So similar to what we saw with Sally Dixon in the film section, the SBAC put Pittsburgh on the map of culturally important places. The Burke Center during its time was a major factor. And, um, you know, it ran into financial trouble and this and that. But in the arts, as you probably know better than me, that's almost unfortunately par for the course. Uh, you're doing something creative and innovative. You're, you're always thinking about eating and money. <laughs> and I'm not sure which order it's in, <laughs> to be honest with you. So before we get into the financial trouble, in 1975, Selma Burke retired. So Selma retires in 1975 and moves back to Bucks County. It's really kind of like sad. You know, there was like fanfare for her departure and retirement parties and thank yous and whatever. But I think I think there were frustrations at, at the end based on sort of the tones of letters and things. Selma had left. She had, uh, I guess falling out with some of the ideas and stuff. And, and, and Selma, I think she really wanted to get back to New Hope. <laughs> then in 1978, the Mellon Trust ended their support, meaning the $100,000 of funding per year was gone. It got a notice that from Paul Mellon that after such and such a date, only these institutions would be funded by the Richard King Mellon Foundation. And, and Summer Burke had six months in order to, to, to get uh, alternate funding. So that was the death knell, you know, so far as they're concerned. It has served its purpose, and they didn't wish to continue it. I asked Rebecca why the Mellon Trust pulled their funding. One thing is, do, do you know why Mellon pulled their funding? So the Mellon Trust uh, folded and has to do with the recession in the late 1970s. So that doesn't mean that that money um, disappeared. It was reshuffled. It's important to say, so the Mellon Trust folded, uh, sort of started in 1977 and started to close. They had a pretty large portfolio of institutions that they supported. They funded the Arts and Crafts Organization, which would become the Pittsburgh Center for the Arts, housed in the Big Yellow Mansion at Fifth Avenue and Shady Avenue, next to Mellon Park. They also funded the Loveless Marionette Theater, which was one of the first professional puppet theaters in the United States. The SBAC was treated differently than any other institution. Um, so they were given six months of financial support to become financially solvent, so to come up somehow with $100,000 that was their operating budget, where arts and crafts was given like uh, twice to three times that. The parting of the SBAC with the Carnegie Institute and the Mellon Trust wasn't positive. The Carnegie Institute reclaimed the SBAC's supplies and tools, the pottery wheels, the photo equipment. There were op-eds in local newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, written in support of the SBAC, but there were also articles in the Pittsburgh Tribune Review that claimed fiscal mismanagement. They were able to retain the building for a little while, but the URA soon gave the building to the Kingsley Association, a long-running organization dedicated to youth and family programming. It's now located at the Kingsley Center in Larimer. The Kingsley Association at the time was headed by Ralph Proctor, who maintained a corner of the building as the Selma Burke Gallery to honor the work of Selma Burke and the SBAC. So, the Selma Burke Art Center carried on, largely without substantial funding, until 1981. But the Selma Burke Art Center continued influencing artists long after it closed. But what they are able to do is sort of, in some ways, like a pinnacle of black feminist art of the 1970s. Like in some ways they should be put on par with things that were happening in New York in terms of institution building and the use of exhibitions to foreground not just black women artists, but black feminist art. You know, Barbara Peterson deserves a lot of credit for that and, and a number of others. And so it's around this time also that Women of Visions comes into being. So, you know, pretty immediately we can see a legacy of the SBAC in the Women of Visions 
They name Burke their sort of like, you know, sort of a visionary for them. He's one of the people that was the, one of the mentors and chairmen for the uh, Women of Visions. And so, you know, in some sense, you could say I am now president of Women of Visions, the longest running African-American visual women's arts collective in the country because of Selma Burke. So the Selma Burke Art Center was an inspiration for Women of Visions. But Bill Strickland also credits the SBAC for influencing the direction of the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild. This place didn't get here by accident. It was because of a number, a lot of good people, some of which I got to know through Selma Burke. So I see that Manchester considers itself part of her legacy, not just my legacy. You know, the tree is now sprouting roots. And my message to anybody that listens to this podcast is, don't give up. Don't, do not give up. If you give up, I guarantee you nothing's going to happen. And if you get despondent, just come over here and I'll talk to you. Thank you for listening to Cut Pathways. Next time, we'll get into the world of electronic music. Yeah, lots of buzzing and lots of beeping. So this episode was written by Catherine. And Dave. And Dave made all the sounds, along with the band Waterer. The oral history program is funded by the Weibo Foundation and other generous donors. If you want to help us continue preserving stories like this, consider making a donation to the oral history program at library.cmu. Also, hit subscribe so you don't miss out on more stories about Steel City Outsiders and the institutional avant-garde. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. Let us know what you think. See you next time.